Greetings programs and welcome back to the Awesome Friday Podcast. My name is Matthew and joining me as is de rigueur is Simon for Hello. this week's discussion of movies. Say hi Simon. Hello, back once again. Uh, happy happy new year. This is a technically, yes. technically first episode <laughs> of the year of our Swift 2024. <laughs> happy new year. I confused my daughter yesterday because um, uh, she interpreted, Dad, why is it called the 21st century? So I told her, well, it's been 21 sets of 100 years, 21 centuries, since our modern calendar switched over to AD and she was there. But well, aren't the dinosaurs older than that? I'm like, no, not this is not all time. This is when Jesus came, uh, was born, obviously, which is how we set our entire calendar system based on the appearance and birth of a uh, invisible skyman. Yeah, it's been yeah, twenty one so sets of hundred years since the arbitrary point that we decided to start counting from. <laughs> so the year of our swift, I'm sure, would make more sense to her completely. Um, yeah. So happy New you know, Year. I keep to... making the joke, and people don't react to it, so I can only assume that they're silently agreeing <laughs> with me. That uh, is, that's that's the most important that's... cultural touch touch point oh. of, the, of the year. Welcome to my world as an English person making jokes in Canada. When no one reacts to my jokes, I just assume that they find it hilarious and are choosing not to express that. So, <laughs> well, I, honestly, I make it as a joke. I'm not assuming they find it hilarious. I assume they're just going, "Yeah, that's that's what it is." Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, she had yeah. a killer last year. There's no way she can top uh, last year as a as a professional performer to have the year that she had and break multiple box office records by the end of it and still be like i mean you haven't seen you haven't seen her show have you i the mind boggles that she has the energy to do that for a couple of years all over the world i don't know how she can do it because she is on that stage for like four hours performing there is no break there at all it's incredible uh i mean yeah the the heiress tour is available to watch at home now and i haven't done it yet mostly because we just mm-hmm. haven't had a three and a half hour block we could dedicate to it um mm-hmm. and uh she is coming to vancouver at the end of this year but i was unable to secure tickets <laughs> um although not for lack of trying i just uh didn't get through the system because uh, mm-hmm. i think it would be worth it and you know it's one of those this is that tour this is the 2023 was clearly the year that established taylor swift as in the ranks of like michael jackson at his height and beatlemania oh, yeah. oh, and absolutely. you know in terms of like all-time acts for better or for mm. worse she's clearly she's always been building towards being one of them but she clearly yeah, she, is one of them now she's the elvis <clears throat> of this generation elvis, exactly sure. another great example like she's the she's the most famous and most accomplished performer on the planet at the moment and she'll go down in history as being alongside all of those other ones we mentioned for sure mm-hmm. yep definitely um some of my daughter's friends got tickets for christmas which is nice nice for them very pleased for them two of her friends have tickets right by the stage so god knows how much that cost them but uh, yeah it's one of those things where i i fully had I fully expect it to have been um, super expensive and probably speaking, given the sort of once in a lifetime nature of it, 
that uh, it would be totally worth it. Like just totally, whatever it costs, it's probably worth it. I like, again, I don't think I I might not be able to afford it. um, Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's probably would be worth it if I could. Yes, I agree. Totally. We're just going to go and stand with a couple of other hundred thousand people outside the stadium and have a little Taylor dance party outside, I think. You're going to tailgate. So someone I know did that. Um, one of my cousins, I have a younger cousin who went and they tailgated Taylor Swift in Seattle, uh, which actually seemed like it was a really good time. Yeah, I'm sure. It was. And of course, uh, our mutual friend, Thomas uh, of uh, For Real Movie News, he uh, he went to the Eras tour with his husband and posted a whole bunch of TikToks and Instagram reels. And it looked like it was a great time. Yeah, he was pretty impressed. It's true. Yeah. It's a very impressive show. The production design and choreography and everything is just uh, out of this, out this world. Can we just sorry? Can we just back up one second? And can you say the word choreography? Choreography. choreography. <laughs> now, this is my problem at the moment. I've just in the last three weeks, I've been I've done about twenty hours worth of edited, recorded narration for a work project, um, and. Uh, on, on listening back and editing, I, I am shocked. There's two things shock me. The first is how many tiny little mispronunciations I make. And the second is the little glottal clicking at the back of my epiglottis that I have to edit out before I say any sentence, and it drives me absolutely crazy. So that was my life. I did so much editing, I had to go and get a um, an RMT massage, massage because I pulled my rotator cuff from pressing Apple T, cutting and pasting links so much in GarageBand. <laughs> I mean, so, that's yeah, uh, that's that pretty stupid. It's a first world problem if I ever heard one, but I'm glad there's a first world solution. <laughs> uh, if, if I just didn't have to work for a living, it would be fine. But hey. I mean, it's a very oh, stark yeah. contrast to the way I edit this show, which is to say that I don't. Um, unless there's something egregious, I'll go find it and remove it. <laughs> But generally like speaking, like choreography, like every every time, every episode, there's a point at which my throat gets all caught up and I end up coughing for like two minutes straight. And uh, <laughs> every, every time I feel like I should go back and edit it out. And I just never do. Nah. So, dear listeners, I apologize for that. Look, uh, we keep our podcast real. Like we're, we're not one of those podcasts. This is like the real thing. You get us warts and all. You know, I will say the one, if there's anything to be disappointed with in terms of the heiress tour coming to Canada, there's two main things. One is that she's only coming to Toronto and Vancouver and like there's other cities, there's Montreal, you know, there's places that she could probably go. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean this as a slight to Gracie Abrams, who is her opening act at all of her Canadian shows, but the shows before Canada, um, the last show before her Canadian stop is at Wembley's, Wembley Stadium. And mm-hmm. all of her European tours have Paramore opening for them. And I would oh, murder shit. someone to go to one of those. <laughs> Cause I, I very much, I very much like Paramore as well. Yeah. That's um, just a different level. Isn't it? And a great way to get everyone warmed up as well. Paramore, fantastic life. Yeah. So, you know, I haven't actually, you know, I haven't been to a concert since 2012. 2012. Yeah. Like a proper who, who, like, pop concert. Wow. Yeah. I'm not sure I have too, but I think all of that stopped around uh, 2011 <laughs> for some yeah. obscure reason, I'm sure. 
But for me, honestly, yeah. it was that uh, you can just, if you look, I keep all my tickets to stuff, and there's a pretty clear transition at one point from going to a lot of co- concerts to going to a lot of baseball games. So, <laughs> it's, uh, we haven't and, done that in a while either. Although, yeah, I haven't really done that since the pandemic, so uh, mm-hmm. I need to go and buy some tickets for the Vancouver Canadians because they're always a good time. Have you, which of your music concerts, thinking about Paramore opening for Taylor Swift, like your opening act is a delicate act because you don't want to get someone who's clearly better than you are at getting the crowd going. And I went to see uh, Oasis in Margham Park, the huge Oasis concert when they were at the peak of their fame, 100,000 people packed into that park. And they chose the, the Prodigy to open for them. And I don't know if you've ever seen 100,000 people jumping at the same time, but the Prodigy mm-hmm. were like, Whatever, however good you think they are, you are correct. Like they were, they owned that field. They owned every single one of us. It was so loud I couldn't hear anything. And then Oasis came on, and I do love Oasis, but they weren't renowned for um, energetic uh, performances. So that was mm-hmm. a bit of a miscalculation. Have you have you seen anything similar? Like at one of your myriad of concerts where the opening act was so much better than the main act, it was kind of stupid. Mm. No. Not not better. I've certainly seen ones where the main act and the opening act were on par. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to think. Yeah, I think the time... I saw Nine Inch Nails on the Fragility oh, Tour. Shit. Fragility oh, 2.0 Tour. And the opening act was A Perfect Circle. Um, it, was actually, it was actually Finger 11 and A Perfect Circle, but A Perfect Circle was incredible. Um, but then Nine Inch Nails came out and played a solid mm. like two and a half hours of music. Mm. Like it was that was pro- honestly like there's two concerts I hold up as being the best two concerts I've ever been to, and Nine Inch Nails is one of them. Yeah, oh, um, Finger Eleven you may not know because they were they're a big sort of like rock band in the '90s in Canada. But A Perfect Circle is Maynard's like Maynard of Tools' other band, and I which I prefer. Okay. Um, if you haven't heard of Perfect Circle, you should go listen to their stuff. Uh, um, they're so much. I think they're better than. I think they're much better than Tool personally, and Tool's great. So, so Nine Inch Nails is one of the best concerts. What was the other one of the two? Gorillas, so much Gorillas. Oh, really? Oh, you know what we we had the choice to see Gorillas, and we went to see um, Katie Tunstall instead. And I love Katie Tunstall, but on the night we came out and we could hear gorillas and my wife and I were like, Oh, we should have gone to see gorillas. <laughs> so gorillas, I will say that like the opening act was NERD, which was great. Um, oh, they're, they're super good. Um, <clears throat> but it was just sort of them on stage. They were on stage and they had a couple dancers and they sang and did their thing and it was good. But gorillas, which I saw on the tour for plastic beach, uh-huh. um, which I think might be my favorite of their albums. But that's a whole other, other discussion. Wow, they cool. had literally everyone who was a featured vocalist on one of the songs on any of their albums were all there, except for Snoop mm. Dogg. Uh, but they had pre-recorded bits of Snoop Dogg to mix into the, what they were performing live. And unlike nice. other concerts I know they perform, where they're like backstage and like there's like a big screen of like the, the animated characters, they were mm. they were on stage the whole time. Um, oh, that's great. It was it. It was so easily, <clears throat> so easily one of the best concerts I've ever been to. It's not even mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. Um, one day that'll be nice. David Arnold's still going strong, so maybe one day. 
I mean, Gorillaz put out an album what, last year. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, it's okay. It's pretty good. Um, and then I guess the third best concert I've been to would probably be. It's not fair to say that the uh, one act was better or worse than the other in terms of like opener because they were technically co-headlines, but I saw Death Cab for Cutie and Franz Ferdinand in a, in a double headline bill. That was a really good show. <laughs> this might be the most early 2000s show I ever went to, but yeah. it was very good. That's awesome. Was this all in Vancouver? Yep. Wow. Cool. Vancouver has always had a, a pretty robust like concert scene sometimes we get stuff late but like they always mm-hmm. come here it's the mm-hmm. biggest canadian city in the west or the most i guess a better way to say it it's not technically the biggest mm-hmm. but it's probably the most important city in the west um yeah well good yeah good. I probably i don't know if i've got the energy to do music concerts these days but maybe no and i honestly find um it's ever since COVID, I find big groups pretty yeah. uh, difficult yeah. to deal with personally. Yeah, it still feels weird, doesn't it? Yeah. It just feels really weird to be in giant groups like that. It does, yeah. And maybe maybe that's on, it's something I need to get used to again, but it still feels, mm. you know, people are still getting COVID, so it's, it's not like yeah. it's over, you know, yeah. no matter what we would like it to be. Good. Okay. So, well, should we talk about our? Um, our yeah, movies? it's all very much like movies. Just for the record, the <laughs> um, joke never gets old. Ever, <laughs> never such a good, ever. Such a wonderfully, stupidly funny um, mm-hmm. segue. Mm-hmm. Um, did I tell you my new dad joke? By the way, just to like get other out of the unrelated stuff out of the way. Oh, Jesus! No, please do though. Oh, so there's a woman, and she is accused of assaulting her partner with a series of guitars. He's he's abusive, um, but she finally loses her loses her temper and like snaps, and she beats him up with his own guitars. And she's arrested, and she's brought into the courtyard into the courtroom, and the charges are read, and the judge looks her up and down and says, mm, first offender," and she says, "No, I used the Gibson first. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, there's times that this should be a video podcast so you can see the pain as that one hit. <laughs> You're welcome. First offender. <laughs> my dad, my dad would enjoy that. He lives off these these things. Well, good. Yeah. Well, you are a dad, so it makes sense you would like dad. I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna store that one for future use. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can be, I can be that, one you I can tell, tell to tell to your son and just watch his face as he slowly gets it. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is the best part of being a parent is causing mental pain on my son by telling him terrible jokes. <laughs> He's now thirteen. I have a thirteen-year-old son. Yeah. That's Let me super tell weird. you. Let me tell you, that is super fucking weird. Yeah, I, I remember when he was new, when he was fresh yeah. baked. Yeah, really, really. Yeah, it doesn't feel like thirteen years, does it? No. Oh well. <sighs> oh well. 
Um, let me tell you, that joke was far better than one of the movies we're talking about this week. How's that for oh, a segue? Yeah, good, good segue. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let's let's dive right in. Um, let's talk about movies, as the name of the show doesn't imply. I don't know why I said that. Um, we're going to talk about two movies and we're going to start with one that is a little bit older. We're finally catching up with, uh, what is now available, uh, for home viewing. And that is the hunger games prequel, the ballad of songbirds and snakes. Uh, this is directed by Francis Lawrence, um, who directed hunger games two, three, and four. I think all three of them, right? Catching fire and both parts of Mockingjay. Who did the first one? Uh, some somebody, somebody else. I thought it was uh, the same guy. Don't remember off the top of my head. Oh, was it Gary Ross? Was he the first one? Oh, interesting. I thought Francis Lawrence did all of them. Uh, no, just the, just just most of them. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Gary Ross was the first one. Um. And he's also, you know, he's made some good other movies. I enjoy Constantine, and I Am Legend is good, and Red Sparrow is better than people think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Constantine, you sort of winced at that, but if... Uh... No, 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 I didn't wince at Constantine. I like Constantine. I winced at um, uh, I Am Legend. Big oh. wince at I Am Legend. Interesting. That movie's interesting because it has it has the ending everybody saw, and then the ending they intended to release, and the ending they intended to release is so much better. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's closer to the book. It's the whole point. It's, ex- the it's ex- exactly the book. It's the book ending. Please, please, please <laughs> anyway. go read. Please go read the book because it is one of the the best uh, books of that genre. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, it's directed by Francis Lawrence. Um, it's starring. Uh, Tom Blythe and Rachel Zegler, and then you also have Peter Dinklage and J- Jason Schwartzman and Hunter Schaefer and Viola Davis and Josh Andres Rivera. Um, and it chronicles the rise of a young Coriolanus Snow who would grow up, he eventually grows up to be Donald Sutherland in the later movies, president of Pan Am, a uh, glorious dictator though he is. Um, but this starts out with him. Um, there's a, there's a prelude, but it's mainly takes place with him as an 18 year old, uh, involved in the 10th hunger games as a, um, mentor to the tributes and without giving too much away for some, for people who are actually going to like this movie and spoiler alert, I kind of didn't, my feelings are incredibly mixed. Um, but, uh, the setup here is that the Hunger Games are now 10 years old and interest in them is waning and they're trying to find new ways to get people on board. And one of the ways they do that is they assign these um, academy students, of which Coriolanus Snow is one, to be mentors to various tributes to try and get them to be more, like, camera-friendly. And also it's implied that they're they're televising this for the first time, or at least that it has a host for the first time in... Yeah. Lucky Flickerman, who is Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Um, and here's... I've said this to a couple people already, but here's my review of this film. Um, it's not great, but it is solidly good. There is a, a lot of really interesting callbacks. The production design is incredible. Rachel Ziegler 
is a born star. Like she gets to sing a lot in this movie and she can sing with the best of them. She's so great and just magnetic every time she's on screen. Tom Blythe is kind of, is fine. Um, I don't think he has the, 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 I don't think he has the depth that Donald Sutherland has, but who does <laughs> really? Um, and also the character is much newer. So he's sort of finding his feet. Viola Davis is in this and she's doing something weird. And I loved every second of it. Um, and then what gets to a point, the Hunger Games start, and Rachel Ziegler's Lucy Gray Baird goes into the Hunger Games, and she's the eventual winner. And the film comes to a uh, a pretty satisfying conclusion. And then there's still an hour to go. Like that's, and then that I'm last ready. hour is the is very boring, and like nothing interesting happens in it. This movie has the opposite problem of the Mockingjay movies. In my opinion, the Mockingjay movies, of which there are two, which are based on one book, there's not enough book to make those two movies and to make them, especially as long as they are. Um, I, I don't I don't think they really are 100% successful because there's just not enough story there for two movies. And this movie has the opposite problem. There is way too much book for one movie. And it's, it's basically two different movies in one. And one of the movies is pretty okay and the other movie is mind-numbingly dull it's so weird isn't it because this this after an hour and a half this film is two and a half hours long and after 90 minutes which is my favorite length of a movie okay if we could go back to an hour and a half movies i'll be very happy uh it it finds a really effective end of what should be part one of a two-part movie series because the, and that last hour, then it feels weirdly underdeveloped, and it is—it's um, so clearly it's actually a really clever and interesting iterative sequel. Like it moves location, everyone gets a haircut, uh, time has passed, statuses have changed, relationships get reappraised, people see each other after time. It's like I, yeah, I it wonder, should, it, should, it should be another I, movie, right? It should be another movie. I wonder if they planned it as a two movie thing and then got cold feet for whatever reason, just decided to get everyone in at once. And it just doesn't work. It's so weird. The structure of this film is so weird. And on all the kind of good, I, I like this film far less than you did, but that first hour and a half has some parts of it. Like the design is interesting. I wish it said something, just had something to say more than it does about the 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 aspect of the Hunger Games, which is humans watching humans hunt humans. I think they missed a massive opportunity to start ten years earlier, and the adoption of this, this punishment, uh, these Hunger Games as punishment for the uh, the regions that lost this like civil war or whatever the war was. I would have been really interested to learn more about the context of that, and it all, it, it kind of starts there and then jumps too far forward um and so all the things i was potentially interested in it just skipped over uh the the general people's reaction to this this idea of hunting of, of for punishment um <clears throat> doesn't really cover anything like that in any degree the the script is incredibly heavy-handed uh rachel zegler needs better movies than this and shazam too because she is She's like a classic star. She is uh, emotionally very good. 
She's got a great accent in this, which isn't her, her natural accent. She she sings almost too well. I don't know. I, I was in two minds. On one hand, she's a she's singing professionally in this movie, and someone who is like a traveling singer perhaps should maybe grade that down a little bit because she is almost too good a singer. But she's also from a, a, a very thinly veiled analogy of like traveling, um, uh, like uh, what do you call them that you can't call them anymore? Uh, gypsy, Romani gypsy, Romani peoples, gypsies that we used to call them. The travel, the the classic idea of the the traveling singers. So it does work, and she is she is incredibly colorful and incredibly uh, arrogant and and cocky. And part of the film's um, problem, I think, is that she she finds this character immediately as soon as she meets this person, uh, um, Donald Sutherland origins. Dude, uh, there's that she he is. That's what this movie is called in my head. He he is from the upper ruling class, and she is from the underclass, who are ruled by a, a ruthless dictatorship. And there's no there's no power. There's no interesting power dynamic at all because instantly he kind of falls for her. Instantly she's kind of talking to him openly, uh, and there's no interesting arc. Everyone's arc in this movie is flat. But it's still kind of interesting to a point, and then, and then, and then it, it keeps going it, for an hour. It just keeps going for an hour, and it, in this really weird, boring melodrama that feels then rushed, trying to get to a point, and it still doesn't say anything. And then there's this really weird twist at the end that, because at some point they've got to get. President Snow, who they've spent a, a movie making us feel sympathy for, they've got to turn him into this ruthless, brutal antagonist of the other Hunger Games movies. And so they find a way to do that right at the end that makes really not much sense at all. And uh, maybe we're not the audience. This is The original Hunger Games was made for the Twilight audience very clearly. This is a Hunger Games that's made for the Riverdale audience and the, the Book Talk audience this is enemies into lovers. This is like everything that that um, that key demographic loves and talks about. So I get it, but it's just um, not very well written at all, and and the pace of it is just so weird. It's so strange. I mean, I, yeah, the I, problem... I didn't enjoy. This was not an enjoyable experience to watch this film. So I did read that Francis Lawrence decided to not make two movies because he regretted making Mockingjay into two movies. Um, mm-hmm. Which I sort of get the like, well, I didn't, it didn't work last time, so I'm reluctant to do it again. Mm-hmm. But it feels like there's such a, I mean, you have to, you have to have known though, right? Like maybe it flows better in the mm-hmm. book. Maybe, maybe it makes more sense in the book where you could divide the book up into sections or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but like, the mm-hmm. it's such a dramatic shift in mm-hmm. this movie that uh it just doesn't it doesn't work mm. and i don't i don't i don't really know what else to say about it right like it's it doesn't it doesn't come it doesn't coalesce as a whole i think that like even if you just separated them like the second the second movie <laughs> would be kind of boring but it would be better for it mm-hmm. because it wouldn't be you wouldn't be um you wouldn't be have your expectations um, impacted by the first story, 
Mm-hmm. And you're right, the first story is maybe doesn't have enough to say about the early days of the society, but I'm honestly sort of fine with that, like, if that's what they're going for. <coughs> but then it's, it doesn't really matter anyway, because it's so dragged down by this second half that feels mm-hmm. so dis... It's, it's weird, because it's incredibly connected, but feels disconnected tonally and pacing-wise. Like, it's it does feel like such a different experience from the first half and yeah. and like I, f- I feel like they would both be fine if they were separate not great but fine you know mm-hmm. like um i mean there's then there's plenty to like at least in the first story like i i legitimately enjoy everything viola davis did in this movie she's playing her character so weird and so big I feel like her mm-hmm. and Jason Schwartzman are the only two people in the mo- in the movie that really understood the movie they were in because they go for really big performances in a way that I very much appreciate in this world mm-hmm. that is meant to be like exaggerated and and weird and dystopian mm-hmm. like um and everyone else is actually pretty understated like I guess except Rachel Ziegler but like everyone else is pretty like oh I'm quietly brooding and quietly thinking about the moral implications of something at the most surface level possible yeah. and meanwhile Viola Davis is like put your hand in the jar of snakes young woman <laughs> like <laughs> and uh and like I mean what a it's, it's hard to say that anyone could match Stanley Tucci's energy in anything but if you're going to cast someone to be Stanley Tucci's ancestor, I think Jason Schwartzman is a perfect choice. Yes. Um, yes. And just every time he's like, he's hosting the Hunger Games, and it's it's legitimately weird to me that someone would be hosting it for the first time in its 10th year, but that's a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time anything brutal happens, and he's like, and just the looks on his face are always great. Like he's, even when he's not saying something ridiculous, he's looking ridiculous, and I, I love every second of it like there's one moment where he's like trying to cancel a dinner reservation just in the background you can just hear him being like i yeah, know it's going on longer than we thought it's, it's, it's everything about yeah. everything he does in the movie is great um but everyone else is so like broody and boring and i don't i don't know it would be fine if it was two movies but it's not so it's not it, it also does the unforgivable thing of having people react to stuff in movies that haven't happened yet. Uh, I call it the, uh, the Khan reaction. Um, like the, at one point, and this is a spoiler, but they reference Katniss at some point. I, I'm going to do my terrible Texas accent. Everyone calls it swamp potato, but I call it Katniss. Isn't that prettier? And it cuts to Tom Blythe's uh, Donald Sutherland origins looking meaningfully. The music swells. It's like, Ah, Katniss. It's like someone saying to you, "Hey, uh, hey, uh, Matt, this this flower is actually called um, uh, uh, rhododendron," and the music swells. You look up, ah, rhododendron. It makes no sense for him to recognize the name Katniss, and it does. <laughs> this movie does that a couple of times, um, and it's just teeth grindingly terrible. Yeah. There's also some choices in it, like the the character of Tigris, who is in the the original books, and she's in the original movies, um, is in this movie as well. And it turns out she's Snow's sister, and that is just 
something that I maybe I'm wrong, but it does not come up at any point that, that she is related to the yes. president <laughs> in the original I movies. Guess. And I feel like uh, that would be an important plot point, you know, an important and uh, also like and I know they're living in a future. I, this, I have a there's a whole other problem I have with the Hunger Games movies, um, and I, but I know they're living in the future. But if if Snow is 18 at the 10th Hunger Games, that means that at the 74th Hunger Games, he's 82. Yes. And I mean, maybe Donald Sutherland is older than I think, but he does not look or sound like an 82 year old to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, uh, but you know, they also live in a future where they can just manufacture living dogs out of thin air. So who knows? Um, anyway. It just, it, it wasn't, it's not well conceived. It's not well written. That everyone has a flat arc. It's weirdly two movies smushed into one. Um, it, it has nothing to say about its own brutality, about its own uh, impact of the Hunger Games. There's literally one character who's like, "Hey, this is bad," uh, and he he has anus in his name. So every time they reference him, it's hilarious. Um, I like I, just randomly. I really liked Ashley uh, Liao in this. I thought she was great, um, and. Uh, Rachel Zegler is really good, really, really good. But this, it's this film has nothing to say at all. It's I don't know why it exists. I don't know why it. it they 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 wanted to tap into something to 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 tap into that Riverdale hunky. Uh, I, mean, I think they man. wanted to. I think they wanted to tap into that. You know, we could probably still make money from the Hunger Games market. Well, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm overthinking it. I know, but they the the thing they do to make this young man, this idealistic young man, turn bad is so catastrophically fucking stupid. You're you're gonna wonder if you've missed if you accidentally slept through a part of this film because it, it just comes out of nowhere and it's one person. <laughs> I'm not. I won't ruin it, but one person's like. Oh, it's this number instead of this number that you did this thing. Well, and then it's suddenly all the trust evaporates, and then suddenly, oh, it just it doesn't even conclude well. The ending is a disaster of this film. It's an absolute disaster. It, it's I, I don't know. Such a, I don't know why it exists. I mean, I know why it exists. I just to make money. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It's one of those things too, where like you kind of wonder. Someone makes a really successful thing. And then someone says, I wonder how this part of that thing got started. Mm -hmm. And I'm not against prequels exactly, but a lot of the time, the stuff we choose to make prequels out of is stuff that is better left to the imagination. Like they're just never, they're never going to come up with as good a reason for something to happen as the reason that exists in your head or that you hope exists in real life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the time when when sequels are written, they end up they end up written in such a way, just like you said, right? Like that they they give reverence to things that shouldn't have reverence in their own story. Mm-hmm. Like they're giving reverence to the to a different story, and mm-hmm. I find that to be kind of problematic. And yeah, it's pandering to the audience. Yeah, and I I feel like you can definitely write a, se- a prequel. Like there's nothing wrong with. I mean, I would honestly kind of love to see some more 
stories in and around the world of the Hunger Games. I'd love to see one, a decent, I'd love to see a good one set in the war that set all this in motion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure that, like, whatever the story of, uh, I think it's the it's quarter quell, so like the 25th or the 50th Hunger Games would be super interesting to revisit, as long as they revisit them independently. Right? Like, as long as they're not, like, very purposely being like, oh yeah, this thing that will be relevant in 50 years. Not, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. It's a, it's an, it's an easy trap to fall into. It's a, it's a difficult yeah. line to walk. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's not, good. It's not yeah. What are you going to give this movie out of five? Cause I've been struggling with it since I saw it. Um, uh, because I, 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 I like, I, I sort of like the first three-fifths, and I don't the last two-fifths. <laughs> this is a, a solid two out of five movie without any thoughts at all. I I, I thought Tom Blythe was fine, and Rachel Zegler was great, and some of some of the movies potentially interesting, but it's just so badly put together. And it really annoys me when people when characters emerge fully formed in their relationships without us seeing how they get to that point. And uh, so barely, it's not a one star, it's barely a two star for me. Yeah, I think, again, I like, I like the first story. And I think it's, you're right, it doesn't really have a lot to say, but it is at least in, interesting and entertaining for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, and then all the entertaining stuff goes away. So I'm going to also give it a two. Like when I initially saw it, I thought I might give it a three, but it's it's clearly a two. Um, cause this, the second, the second story drags it down just, just that much. Um, so it's probably a higher two than yours, but not by much. Yeah. yeah. That's fair enough. Would you ever watch this film again though? I wouldn't. Uh, oh. so we watched this at home and as happens a lot of times when we go to rent, do a premium rental, the difference is often $5. Oh no, did you buy it? Oh, so we bought it gambling that we would like it. Which honestly, most of the time we'll look at a, we'll look at a film like this and and gamble correctly, and this time we mm. did not. Uh, mm. And honestly, the interesting thing to me is that my wife, um, I like the Hunger Games fine. <laughs> my wife likes them more than I do. She hated this movie. Oh, did like, she? Like from the start, she thought it was terrible. Like from ten minutes in, she just started cross stitching and stopped watching. Like, it, okay. like she's obviously still paying attention, but. She uh, she hated every frame of it. Um, Interesting, and that's not a reaction she has often. Like she she's not usually one to loathe something as much as she loathes this. So no, it was a bad purchase. Is all I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I mean, honestly, probably will it get watched again? I mean, I own it, so prob probably at some point. Like mm -hmm. I'll probably watch the first three fifths and then turn it off. Yeah, um, and I might go back at some point, even this week, and just watch the last like half hour again because honestly, I don't really remember it. That's how boring it was to me. It's so, so bad. It's really bad. Yeah, the last half hour is awful. Yeah. Uh, oh well. Good job, everyone involved. We've made some money from the franchise. I mean, it made money, so I assume we'll get more in the franchise. And I think the franchise has lots of potential. I just don't think this one was very particularly good. Yeah. yeah. But it made like $320 million on a $100 million budget, so it profited. Uh, 
they're in business then we'll get more of those then yeah well let's move on let's move on to a good movie um yeah one that i think we can both agree is good um simon why don't you take us through oh, the, the briefest of synopses of the film uh society of the snow the society that that de la nieve uh, yeah my spanish is not good enough to refer to it by its proper name so if you excuse me using the translation society of the snow is a another retelling of the uh, uruguayan andes flight disaster in 1972 um a small plane um it, which included uh there's something clicking yeah, that's me. Sorry. Okay, a small plane carrying a bunch of Uruguayan rugby players uh, flying to Chile crashed in the uh, Andes, and basically was um, they looked for them for a little bit, and they uh, no one's ever survived a crash in that part of the world. So when they couldn't find the remaining part of the fuselage, uh, they assumed that everyone had died, and it would be a fair assumption because at one point they say this this place does not support life at all. There's no life that can live there. It's very high up. It's very, very cold. It's very, very dangerous. And it wouldn't be unreasonable to uh, assume that everyone's going to be dead pretty quickly in that environment. Um, this was this had a film in the oh, 90s or 80s called Alive. When did Alive come out? I've not actually seen it. Uh, I think uh, it was actually 30 years ago, almost on the button. I think it was 93. Okay, right. So um, this uh, was made with the um, with the survivors as well. So I, I assume it's I don't know if Alive was was accurate, but this one is uh, very very accurate, I think. And the thing that struck me about this film is that it is absolutely harrowing. It is it, um, not. Y- y- it's a well-known story, so the story is is going to be quite predictable. But the way it's told is so effective. The filmmaking of the the amount of time they give the boys before the plane is just long enough for you to get to know them. But it gets down to the plane crash pretty quickly and spends a, most of its time on these boys surviving together uh, in this in uh, inhospitable mountain range. And as someone who hates flying like really hates flying the plane crash was one of the most harrowing things i've i've ever seen on film and um it is graphic without feeling gratuitous if that makes sense mm-hmm. there's uh it the the plane it uh, and they know they're crashing for a while before they crash and it's it's really terrifying the way they use sound they put the they keep the camera for the most part inside the uh the, the passenger area so you're really in that moment you can see what's coming and and the plane uh i've read up on this that the crash is accurate that it clips the top of a range and the the tail flips off and the wings shear off and basically the fuselage finds this slope and at 200 and something miles an hour goes down the slope and then hits an ice wall so all the uh chairs uh basically crushed to the front of this fuselage and it is absolutely horrific <laughs> horrifically done and um what the only thing that's more horrific is then what they have to do to survive that and not just the actions they take because it's well known that they it's in the it's in the post it's on the trailer that they they resort to cannibalism to stay alive 
but it's the um the decisions to get to that point and also the 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 survival mechanics that kick into that point as well and how much they try and help other people and how much sometimes you just can't save everyone and also the point at which they survive the point at which they decide to uh, not stay there anymore. Like they have one chance to do something about it after multiple failed attempts. And um, one of the most horrific and terrifying parts of this movie is an avalanche. And I won't say anything more about that, but it is so well shot. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. so well shot. I would love to, watch a behind the scenes making of this because the, the boys in this film uh, either were emaciated on a mountain or they have one of the best sets and costume and makeup people I've ever seen because they look horrific by the end of this process and they look gone and, and the eyes are like bloodshot and sort of puffy as well. It's really incredible. And, um, absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. and it keeps you it keeps you there as well it keeps you uh, right in that location um without removing you for, for the most part of the film you're on the mountain with them and it's brilliantly acted by this group of um obviously it's spanish first language but it's brilliantly acted by this collection of La- uh, latino performers and um the ending is incredibly emotional as it should be. Uh, and it does that really interesting thing that um, Dunkirk does as well, is that they don't understand after the horrors they've been through, they don't understand why they're being heralded as heroes. And that sort of, that the, the horror of reintegration, knowing what you've been through, but also having the guilt of not dying where your friends died. Like, why did we live and others died? I think it handles that brilliantly as well. And then, of course, the 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 final chunk of the movie, the credits and everything, show that the actual pictures they took of the survivors. And it is, I haven't seen alive, but I, I would love to hear from you if it's this emotional and this harrowing as a movie. I thought it was incredibly successful as a film. So, um, before I go into talking about this movie. I will say that I have seen Alive. I haven't seen it in a little while. Um, but what I would say is that the key difference here would be authenticity. Um, not because the story in Alive is well, not well told, because it is. Like, it's Frank Marshall is the director, um, and it starred a, a lot of young Hollywood up and comers at the time. Ethan Hawke is in it, among others. Um, but there's something there's something more authentic about it, not only because these are actual like Uruguayan kids and they're all but they're all like up and comers. There's something a lot more visceral about the performances. Um, and I don't know if it's because they're new or the way they're coached by the director, J. A. Bayona. Um, but this film feels less like in telling the same story, it, it feels more like you're there with them, I guess would be the way to put it. It feels less like a stage play and more like a thing that is being experienced. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, and that's not to say that any of the performances or anything about Alive is bad, because Alive is a good movie. Um, um, and 
but I think this one spends makes the choice to focus more on the the individual characters rather than the story as a whole. Um, and so when the story unfolds, you have a much closer appreciation of each of the people who are making the choices that lead to the things that happen in the story. This is a very fine distinction, I know, but I feel like it's a, a subtle but important one. Um, mm -hmm. Because you're right, this film is harrowing. Um, it's also gorgeous. Um, mm -hmm. it turns out that the Andes, like the mountain, whatever mountain range, I think they filmed in the Andes, but whatever mountain range it is, like mountains are beautiful. Um, I think they actually think they filmed in Spain and in Chile. I think, I think they actually went to the actual crash site. Whereas Alive took, Alive was filmed here in BC, right? So, oh, right. and that's a, it's a different kind. They're still beautiful, but it's a different kind of beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that the key, the key difference here is that it it feels like a more authentic retelling, um, and it feels. Also, just like the level of like effects, both practical and digital, are have come a long way since 1993. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stuff, the avalanche scene in particular, is, an, is one you highlighted. The avalanche scene does something really similar to the crash scene you mentioned, where like they are at the time of the avalanche, they are all in the fuselage, sort of hiding from the elements, and most of that scene is shot from inside the fuselage uh, as they are experiencing mm -hmm. it. So you're always there with them. It's never. Mm -hmm zoomed out to show you what's happening you're always there with them as it's happening and i think that's a really yeah. key distinction between this and live um and yeah this film is great um it's it's a really it's a really well-known story i don't really feel like i need to recap it any more than you already have but the the way the the young actors all interact with one another um the, the way they come to the choices that they come to, the way that their whole story plays out is like, you're never not rooting for them. Um, and because it's so focused on each of them, I think each death, because they don't all die. It's not like, it's not like the plane crashed and half of them died and half of them lived. And those are the ones that got rescued. Mm. People died throughout this, this um, experience. Mm. And by keeping the focus on the individual characters, throughout it makes every single death far more impactful mm. um there's a couple of the like the ending of this movie is one thing but there's a couple of deaths even towards the end of the second and beginning of the third act that are difficult to bear um and and just wonderfully performed by this cast of effectively all unknown actors like they're I, I just, that's incredible yeah like none of these Almost none of the people in this movie are people who would have like even other credits. At least one, the kid who plays um, Antonio uh, Vizintin, uh, or whose nickname in the movie is Tintin, he's a rugby player. He's an international rugby player, not an actor. Um, and I think, again, I think that brings a. There's no like. There's no pretension in any of the performances. There's no. There's no performativeness in any of the performances it's all very grounded and very real and again i'm going to come back to the word authentic uh in a way that really makes this a harrowing watch and i would say it's you know it's on track to it's the best new movie of 2024 but it's actually a 2023 film technically so <laughs> um yeah. this film is gonna, is on the short list for the oscar for best best foreign language film 
and uh, our best international feature, as it's called now. And I'm I'm pretty confident it'll get through to the ballot for the for the for the award. I think it's great. We we talked about newcomers a couple of weeks ago with the holdovers as well with the guy from there who was brand new. And I I think the the authenticity of of um, not having too much like training does that make sense? Like they are so all of these boys are so real and in the moment. And I think so much comes from them just feeling what they should be feeling at the time without overthinking it. Mm-hmm. But also the, the the other advantage you have that you probably don't have in a live is that there's no famous faces. So you, you don't, sometimes it's easy to predict who's going to live and who's going to die and who's going to make it to the end credits, depending on the uh, cast list. And uh, the, I didn't know the story well enough to know which of them will survive. And so Every every death is meaningful, as you said, and there's perhaps it. I don't want to say it's more meaningful, but the the ones who survived and the ones who hung on and then sort of kind of faded or made the decision to fade towards the end. Mm-hmm. That's just gut wrenching, gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one there's one particular avalanche scene that is uh, a guy describes him and his sister in this avalanche and the position he was in and it's it it's brilliantly written as well just to really get into that part of your brain that cannot imagine being in that situation and, and how we would survive in that situation mm-hmm. which i don't think but um it's it's an incredible film it's so well done it, as you said it's not performative it's so real and it's so authentic and because of that it's incredibly emotional at the end when that when they finally spoiler when they finally are rescued and they are taken away it's incredibly uh light and uplifting yeah and like i say i think yeah there's the lack of performativeness the lack of pretension in in the performances i think is pretty pretty key and then just coming back to the authenticity piece i think it's also you know we talk there's always a line whenever anyone argues against someone especially people of color um being in a movie people will be like well they should just cast the best person for the job and that's always a way of being like cast the white guy right like cast the actor i know and and i'm not trying to like disparage anyone who is in live i think again i think Alive's a good movie but there's something a little more authentic than uh, about this movie being made with actual Uruguayan and like South American people. Because yeah. on, yeah. on the other side of that is that like at no point does anyone sound Hispanic in a live. Like they're all white. It's all white boys. Yeah. You know, it's like, hi, I'm Nando Parado. You know, it's <laughs> it's it doesn't quite work. <laughs> Um, in the same way that it, it does when you have actual people who at least, at least speak the language, you know, like it's a whole, a whole thing. And then there's also something like J.A. Bayona is Spanish, not South American. Um, but at least there's an, uh, sort of a more, a closer cultural understanding there. Um, and I feel like this is, I mean, it's a pretty famous story here. I can't imagine what it must be like in Uruguay and, and, and Chile, right? So, like, I think there's probably a closeness of, to the story that they have that we just don't, that yeah. 
means they they sort of get it in a way that we never would if that makes sense yeah. like because yeah. i can read all about it i can read all about the story and i have but it's never going to mm-hmm. be like an important cultural touchstone for me as a canadian or you know ethan hawk as an american so yeah. um not not in precisely the same way and the way that i think really lends weight to the story anyway yeah how, so how, how many, many stars are you? Oh, okay yeah i'm going for uh, it's a four star movie for me like yeah. it's a uh, brilliantly made well written it's predictable but i don't think that matters in the the way it shoots and and uh tells the story and the way it's written and acted is exceptional four stars uh yeah i agree uh four stars is i think where i landed with it as well and um it's not that much holding it back from being five though to be honest like it's 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 exceptionally well performed uh it's exceptionally well made and if this were to go through and become the like if this ends up winning best international feature at the oscars over some of the other films i saw this year i don't think it will to be perfectly is honest in, is it in contention is this the, the yeah, it's, movie? On the, it's on the short list uh, oh, we have oh. we don't have the actual nominees yet but it's on the short list yeah, that would be fantastic. I mean, in a year where the zone of interest and the taste of things exist, I, I honestly don't think that it's going to. But if it did, I would not be upset about it. Right? Like, um, and I, you know, to be fair, I'm not, I try to not be upset about any award wins. I'm trying to, you know, be that guy who celebrates the winners, not laments the losers. But um, it's, uh, I think it's entirely worthy of being in the category, is all I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. You wrap it then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Anything? Any messages for the kids out there? Um. Oh. Um. I highly recommend you watch the new Percy Jackson series on Disney Plus, even if you are not um, into or sort of the YA fantasy uh, style genre stories. The, the movies are fine. The movies that came out famously made them older because they, too, wanted to tap into the Twilight crowd. And Rick Riordan, who was a brilliant writer, um, was not very happy with that at all. He's involved with this, and they've cast the kid that Ryan Reynolds found to play young him off the internet. Turns out he is fantastic, and they've cast the, the main trio of actors who are now age accurate to the books, and the, the, book, the, the events are far closer to the books um uh it's just really really well made and well acted and intelligently done and uh really exciting to watch as well so i I thoroughly recommend you dive into that we're four episodes into that and it's a real family favorite here already it's excellent Hmm. i have heard that i just haven't made the effort just yet um i have things i'm excited to talk about for various reasons, uh, none of which I'm allowed to talk about yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, they all sound wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, due to various embargoes and other uh, things. But, uh, you know, 2023 closed out as one of the best years of cinema I can remember. And here's hoping 2024 continues that trend. Because uh, I I like when things are good. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, 
Um, but yeah, that's, uh, let's wrap it up there. Cause that is a good, as good a place as any. Um, if you are listening to us, thank you so much. Um, if you've liked what you've heard, consider supporting us. Uh, you can do that in a number of ways. Uh, the easiest and probably most impactful way would be to subscribe or like, or five-star review us on your podcasting platform of choice. Um, another more direct way uh, would be to support us on Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash mcsimpson, which I am way too lazy to change. And uh, every week we do a bonus round. Um, this week we talked about films from our that we received on physical media for Christmas. Um, and there's some, it's always a lively, but far more rambly, more fluid, uh, natural discussion, I think. And they're a lot of fun to make. And you can listen to those for as little as $2 Canadian a month. Um, bargain. Yeah, it's a bargain. That's what, like, you know, it's like 40 cents American and about 25p. So, like, do <laughs> do what you will with it. Um, yes. With every drachma. You can, you can support, you know, a starving child in Africa or us for less mm -hmm. than a price of a cup of coffee. In fact, now you can do both for less than the price of a cup of coffee in Canada. So um, I suggest you do that. Uh, yeah, if you'd like to look us up, um, you can find me on all the socials. I'm at SmatthewAF in most places. The show is at AwesomeFridayCA in most places. Simon is famously not on social media, and he is much better for it. Oh, my gosh. Um, but you can you can find us all. Uh, Simon is at Temporary Pen. My website is at Stretch.ca, and the show is Awesome Friday. Uh, .ca as well. Um, last but not least, we of course are here in Vancouver on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. Uh, and thank you so much once again for joining us on this Awesome Friday.